0: We'll be in First Chronicles chapter five. I'll pick up where we left off. Uh, we have already done uh, Judah and Simeon, so not the birth order in chapter four. Uh, for the various genealogies, we have we're going through each of the tribes of the um, tribes of Judah, starting with Judah and Simeon, um, and then those two being the last standing before Babylon in line of the David. Um, Judah is told that he'll rule. God promises God's help for this future gift that's going to be there. Judah is part of the birthright of Israel. So Jacob being Israel, instead of giving his birthright to just one of his kids, which is traditional, you get the eldest son typically would get double the land allotment, double the physical material resources. But the other thing that they would get is the inheritance. So the inheritance wasn't just the land. It was also the spiritual blessing. And it was also the, 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 um, the blessing of worship of Yahweh or Jehovah. So they'd be the head of those things. So what happens when they get formed is Judah gets the earthly kingship, gets that blessing of you're going to be the Lord or the king of this. But then he moves that blessing around. Reuben doesn't get the blessing. And as we get to chapter 5, uh, this is why. Reuben and uh, Gad and half-tribe of Manasseh, In 723 BC, the Assyrians haul them off. They're the people that didn't go into the promised land. So the chapter five covers those three tribes. They're the first ones to fall to the Assyrians of all the tribes. So verse one. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, He was indeed the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the birthright we just talked about, the son of Israel, so that the genealogy is not listed according to the birthright. So the author is saying, this is why I did that back in chapter four. Yet Judah prevailed over his brothers and came, and from him came a ruler, although the birthright was Joseph's. So does this make sense? right? Joseph gets double allotment of land. Ephraim and Manasseh, his two kids, become tribes and they get a full portion of land, which means Joseph gets two portions. Why does he get two portions? Because he's Joseph, the coat of many colors guy, right? There's tons of blessings with that. And, and, and Jacob or Israel see that and give him the blessing, but he gives Judah this authority part of the inheritance, He'll be the one in charge. He won't get the double portion of land, but he'll get the authority that'll come through his line. So the comment here is looking for this trail or birthright. Verses one, through one and two are, it's not Reuben. Reuben was unstable as water. He does not have preeminence because you went into your father's bed and you defiled it, Genesis 49.4. And that gets repeated here. That's fulfilled here. The birthright being a double proportion goes to Joseph. Genesis 49.10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and until him the gathering of the people. When those prophecies were made by Isaac at the blessing in Genesis, what Chronicles is showing is those things have come true, and those things have been fulfilled. The line, the the ruler, the scepter or image of rulership actually does go to Judah. Then you get uh, verse three: the sons of Reuben, the firstborn, are a series of names. Uh, You'll notice in chapter 5, one of the names is Baal. That's not a good name for a Hebrew to name their kids. So so things are happening with Reuben that show a compromise. Uh, It keeps moving um, by their families, verse 7, when the genealogies of the generations are registered. There's a formalization of keeping family records at the temple. Then it gives the chiefs, chief of Zehel, Zechariah, verse 8, a series of sons there that settle as far as the entrance of the wilderness on the side of the Euphrates, verse 9. So they had cattle that multiplied. They were in the land of Gibeel, They were blessed. And in the days of Saul, they made war with the Hagrites who fell by their hand. And they dwelt in their tents throughout the entire area east of Gilead. This is interesting. They didn't have the inheritance. They didn't get that blessing of birthright. But the tribe of Reuben is successful and they do grow. The Hagrites are Arabian people. And at one point, the Reubenites trusted God. And they were on the right track. Now, if this book is written as a manifesto on why you should come from Babylon and move back into Israel, that's a, the, for the Reubenites, it's like, look, you guys used to be a great people. And we're going to see that pattern with every tribe. You used to be great. And you can be great again, just put your trust in the Lord. So we're going to see with most tribes, there is a Make Israel Great Again campaign going on or a mega campaign, right? And they made little hats that were red, white, and blue. Uh, But the idea is you used to be mighty warriors. You used to have cattle raised and you can do that again. You can be that tribe one more time. Then you get this family of Gad in verse 11. Children of Gad dwell them in the land of Bashan, gives their territory, gives a series of names. If you were here last week, I explained that I am breaking my rule and I am not reading every single name. Um, But you will get through here. The point is that God actually keeps track of these things and he's looking at all of these things and every one of these names matters to these families. These are all families that would recognize their grandpa's name in these lists. So my guess is every one of the Israelites living in Babylon, at some point or another in these chapters, they can find their, their grand, grandfather and maybe their grandmother's name. Like, we're of that group. You're a Reubenite. You're a mighty warrior. You're not just some captive of Babylon. You're you're mighty. So look at what they do with um, with Gad. All the Gadites, verse 16, dwell in Gidla, Gilead, Basham, villages in the common lands of Shara within their borders. They were They were lords of themselves at one point, chief of their father's house, verse 15. All these were registered by genealogies in the day of Jotham, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, king of Israel. So they're citing their source in verse 17. They're referencing these records. Together, the Gadites, they were a strong people. The sons of Reuben, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh had 44,760 valiant men. You used to be valiant. You used to be something. You could bear the seal, the shield and the sword. You could shoot the bow and you were skillful in war. You were mighty men. They made war with the Hagrites. Jetur, Naphish, Nodab, verse 20. They were helped against them and the Hagrites were delivered into their hand and all of them who were with them, for they cried out to God in battle and he heeded their prayer because he put their trust in him. They didn't move into the Holy Land, but then when they went to battle with their trust in the Lord, they won their battles. Remember that? back in the day when you trusted in the Lord, you used to be something. And so all of this is being written to encourage these people, come back to Jerusalem and rebuild, rebuild Israel with us, join us in that. So even though they weren't in the promised land, they could pray and God responded to them. So just because they didn't follow everything to the T didn't mean the Lord wasn't with them. The Lord was actually with people that screwed up. They don't get into how Gad screwed up, but they do highlight that in verse 20, they had cried out to God at one point in their history. One point in their history, they knew how to do that. They took away livestock 50,000 camels, 200,000 sheep. Um, Many fell dead because the war was God's and they dwelt in their place until the captivity. Until the Assyrians took you guys off and, and brought you captive, you guys dwelt in your place. You owned your land, you managed your own affairs. They were men and women of prayer. So the Gadites, there's the Gadites. Then you get the family of Manasseh, or at least East Manasseh. The half-tribe of Manasseh dwelt in the land. Their numbers increased from Bashan, that is, from Seneir to Mount Hermon. These were the heads of their father's houses. They give a bunch of names. And then look at the end of verse 24. They were mighty men of valor, famous men, heads of their father's houses. These were good men leading these families. Remember back in the day, mighty men of valor, famous men. In fact, there's, there's really six complements in that. In the Hebrew, it's mighty men valor, famous men heads. They were headship. They were, the house of, they were a father of, that managed their own houses. They were bold, sure. They were known. They were leaders of homes. People knew the half-tribe of Manasseh as godly men that led their families. They were mighty, powerful, and strong in the Hebrew, male. I think we need to define that now. That means adult male. And they were a valor that was a host of people. And they were worth an army of men, each of them. The word valor is just a wonderful word. They were named, famous. They were head or top or front. In other words, part of what made the half tribe of Manasseh impressive in battle is they they were in the front of the battle. You guys used to be at the front of this. That was their beginning. They were worthy. And once again, Again, if you're reading this as a descendant of these people, you're the descendant of strong, mighty, valiant, famous warriors. And the chronicler is kind of putting that out there. So you got Reuben known for their fighting, Gad known for being a people of prayer, and Manison known for being for great fathers and heads of their households. This is, wow. No record of sin. No record of what they did wrong. Just you guys used to be something. And the section ends with what happened to all that tradition and renown. They fell away. Verse 25, they were unfaithful to God, their fathers. They played the harlot after gods of the people of the land, whom God had destroyed before them. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pool, king of Assyria, that is Tilgath-Pilesar, king of Assyria, and he carried the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh into captivity. He took them to Hala, Harbor, Hara, and the river of Gozen to this day. They're still settled in those cities. This implies that part of Chronicles wasn't just bringing people back from Babylon. They would have sent the book of Chronicles out to these remnants that had been sent out to other places and asked them to come and return too. So why did they lose their physical sovereignty? Because they gave up their spiritual war first. They lost territory because they lost their hearts. And why, why, what did that happen? Verse 25, they were unfaithful. They were not to be relied upon. To be unfaithful is you can't trust this person. They're like water. They come and go. And that was exactly what Isaac said Reuben would be all about. They were passive in their faith. Number two, they played the harlot that's actively worshiping things that are not God. It's committing adultery in the spiritual realm. So the opposite of that would be to be faithful and play spouse to God. One God, one king, one ruler. Amen to that. So that the problem is clear and the solution is clear for the Chronicles. First Chronicles chapter 6, the family of Levi. Levi's the third born. He inherits not the rulership of Judah and not the land of Joseph, but he inherits the priesthood. So the Levites got no land whatsoever. That's because he and Simeon did that massacre at Shechem. And so he's in trouble for that. He doesn't get a land allocation. Simeon gets dissolved into Judah, so they get a bunch of cities, but Judah pretty much envelops the Simeonites. Uh, But Levi, being faithful in Exodus 32, not going after idols, becomes the tribe that leads the way spiritually. And so the Levites don't get land, but they're scattered throughout all of Israel, and they're meant to keep the Israelites following God, to be good teachers of the word. And they have to scribe and keep the word alive or their job is to maintain the records of the, the nation. So these families have a special calling and their genealogy looks a little different. Verse 1 in chapter 6. The sons of Levi were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Sons of Kohath were Amram and they give a series of names. Essentially it goes from Kohath to Amram, Aaron, Eleazar, Phinehas, Abishua, Buki, Uzi, Zerariah, Mariath, Amariah, Ahitub, Zadok, Ahimaaz, Azariah, and Jo Hanan. In verse 10, begot Azariah. It was he who ministered as priest in the temple that Solomon built Jerusalem. So, like the genealogy we saw last week, we get a really quick over overview of the Levites that goes straight from Levi all the way down to Solomon's reign with the first temple. So here's all those things. So it's a little time stamp in the genealogy. And it separates this group from the second temple era. So then verses 11 through 15, you get another set, another time stamp. There's no sense of numbering like there was last week. So there aren't nice little tidy clusters of 10 here. There's just listings of family. So as with the line of David in chapter 3, from Judah to Zedekiah, here we get Levi to Jehoshaddak, to exile. So the original all the way to exile. Uh, Which is interesting because if you take Zedekiah, the last king before the exile, and you take Jehozadak, the last priest before the exile, you actually have two names that have the same three letters rearranged. In the Hebrew, it's interesting because letters have meanings and they also have number allocations to them. So the two names add up to the exact same number. In addition, if you rearrange the letters, they have the exact same meaning. Jehozadak means Jehovah is just Zedekiah means just is Jehovah. You just flip the things around. In other words, when they go into exile, they got two leaders of the spiritual life and the civic life. Their names both say the same thing. God's just. You have failed to keep your covenant. God said he would bring these consequences. Now he's bringing the consequences. God is just. So they both have the same kind of thing. Um, It also says the Lord carried Juva. The Lord carried Judah and Jerusalem into captivity in verse 15, by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, God's overseeing all of these things. This consequence of being hauled to Babylon, God was overseeing that confident thing. The other piece with these genealogies, there's no indication that the populations were diminished in Babylon. In fact, you get the opposite impression. Them being carried off to Babylon, a lot like Egypt, they multiplied they actually did pretty well. The fact that they're writing an entire book to convince people to come back, Israel is a wasteland right now. Babylon seems to be the better place to live for most people that look at this through the earthly lens. So they're trying to convince people, come back to Israel and be part of this mission that God has, which is further filtering the people of God for the people that are comfortable in Babylon versus the people willing to do something hard by rebuilding in Jerusalem. So not only are you filtering out the, the the northern ten tribes that disobeyed God and fell away from God, but you're also filtering people that really want to live that life for the Lord. Then in verse 16, the sons of Levi, we start the family tree in a more expensive, extensive way. Um, the sons of Levi are Gershon, Kohath, Merari. Again, this is the same as verse 1. But we're going to get into the divisions of ministry. There's four priestly divisions in Israel and the genealogy is going to be organized by those four priestly divisions the first one are the sons of Gershon in verse 17 Uh, the Libnon Shimei they were the ones that dealt with all the fabric and the ropes of the tabernacle and the temple they were the the weavers and the seamstresses verse 18 the sons of Kohath were Amram, Ishtar, Hebron and Uziel they dealt with the Ark of the Covenant the objects and all the vessels they were the metal workers and the carpenters then you get to the sons of Merari, verse 19, Mahili and Mushi. They dealt with all the frameworks. They were the lumber workers, the tiles, the metal workers. They dealt with everything that had to do with the frame and construction of the temple. They were the masons, but not like today's masons. They were like Old Testament stone workers. Now, these are the families of the Levites, according to their fathers. Verses 20 through 29, give these family groups... And again, every one of these are important. They're all being named. They're all part of the mission of God. And they're all part of reestablishing the temple in Jerusalem. They know the families. They know the duties. We know where the priests are. We know what families they're in. We're good to roll. They're good to rebuild the temple. So the genetic mapping today, which is interesting, allows for the confirmation of Levitical lineage that we haven't had for 2,000 years. So when the temple fell apart at the hands of the Romans, A lot of these family groups were lost with the temple records that were kept at the temple. But today they're able to start piecing together family groups based on genetic DNA. Interesting trend going on. But there are easier ways in that they maintain their surnames. So it's not hard when somebody's named Levine that that name comes from the word Levi. If somebody's named Rubenstein, they probably came from the family of Ruben. So you have those things, but they're not confirmed in the documentation. They're simply name traditions of a family. It's a little harder when you get Horowitz, Kagan, Katz. Like some of those names are harder to associate to families that are in the list. But the Kohanim, the priestly line of the Kohanim, um, become the rabbis later on. So we have that group. So... Verse 31, we get a unique group of Levites, the priests that are musicians. So you get musical groups. Now these are the men who David appointed over the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark came to rest. That's 2 Samuel 6. They were ministering with music before the dwelling place of the tabernacle of meeting until Solomon had built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem and they served in their office according to their order. So this is interesting in the sense of We haven't had a lot on music ministry in the Bible, and you get this little sense of what's going on with music, but you kind of get it sideways. First of all, it says there is a service of song. The word service there is the same word that we get ministry from. It's important in that there is a ministry that is done with music according to the Old Testament. These families get their own section of the genealogies because they're that important. So the artists, the musicians that are doing this are an important group of people. And it says, it also says there that they are ministering with music. The word there is sharath, the service of attending to the menial tasks. Ministry is not usually glorified. Ministry is somebody willing to take care of the small stuff. And they use that word when it comes to music. These are people that don't need to be on the stage doing the sacrifice. These are the people in the temple service that are off to the side that don't get the attention. And so the music is going, but it sets up more of a background. For the Jewish people, the musicians weren't on the stage like a rock star. They were off to the side providing a context for the worship of the people. It's interesting how they think of that. It says here, before the dwelling place, the word there is panyim. It's one of my favorite words. It means in the face of God or in front of God. When they do worship before the dwelling place, the idea is when they do music for God, they're not doing music for the people. They're not doing it to entertain. They're doing it in the face of God when they do their music. And you think of worship in the service of God and what that was intended to look like, and you start to get some really important principles out of how this is worded here. They, um, they served in front of the tabernacle until Solomon had built... In other words, worship was established prior to the temple. This is a big deal because it means that these people that do music should be doing music whether or not they have a fancy building. That the worship of God was established by David well before the temple was ever built. It should be continuing while they're in Babylon. And as they build the temple going back, those musicians will immediately go back to doing music. This is a good thing for musicians that want to keep their fingers good and they don't want to do masonry work. Right? If you come back and help rebuild the temple, musicians, you're going to be making music. And there's an important thing that they were doing that before Solomon built his temple. Another piece in there, they served in their office. In the Hebrew, it means they remained in their service. It's an interesting turn of phrase. Not just anybody gets to do this. There's a group of people that David ordained, and that group of people become musicians, and they remain in that service because they're good at it. And God's given them a skill. Here's the other thing with musicians. If you let musicians do music, they get better over time. So to remain in their service, to stick to it and do it, gains talent and skill, which before the face of God, becomes a glory to God. So these musicians spent their life perfecting their craft so that they could glorify God to the utmost when they got at the temple courtyards leading people in worship. You think of that. And sometimes we're hard on musicians in the church and how they do music and what they do for music. And I think the church in two folds needs to expect that musicians are growing in their skill because they're committed to it. But the church also needs to accept that sometimes musicians need to grow in their skill and they need an opportunity to do that. And so as in the church, sometimes we tolerate young musicians that are working on their craft and we, we expect older musicians to be good at what they do because they've done it for a while. Music is done by these people that are serving in their office. They're called to it. It's what they're appointed to. And then six, it says, according to their order in verse 32. Music then is intentional. It's ordered. The Hebrew word there is judgment. It implies that they do it according to their judgment. So music here isn't according to their feelings It's not ad hoc. It's not willy-nilly. It's according to a judgment that they've made as to what will be appropriate before God and with God's people. And that's an interesting thing. And you see different traditions around music in the church. We see, at least in this passage, music is done according to their order, their judgment. They've thought about it. They've thought what's going to be appropriate, what's going to bring people into the presence of God. And that's the kind of music we're going to create. And we're doing it to bless people because we're going to do it according to our judgment. What is the right thing to do? And that judgment changes over time. That leaves a lot of leeway for musicians. But the question has to be for a musician, what's going to bring God glory? What's going to help others bring, bring them before the presence of God? And what's going to set the tone for that environment? So musicians called to that service do it with or without a temple courtyard before the face of God, ministering with music in the service of song. God establishes a music ministry. And to me, at least when you go through that sentence is amazing how much is packed into one sentence, just buried in the genealogies here. Here's music ministry. And here's what it looks like praise and worship celebration and reverence and finding that balance between those things. What a gift. So some see, I think in music, this can be a thing in the church, Some people think for musical types that to put any constraint on them is to be too rigid. And we'll see in the Bible, music is done in an orderly way. Some people think that if you want to be part of God's plan, there has to be a balance or a creativity, but there also has to be a structure to that creativity that brings honor to God. They have to be both there. So how do you give musicians freedom, but at the same time create an order for them to do it? Hold them accountable. It's a ministry they're part of. They use their judgment, so teach them judgment and discernment over what they're doing for their musical choices. And this becomes a thing that can be an amazing blessing for the church. It can be something the enemy uses to divide churches too. I don't know if you've ever heard somebody complain about traditional music versus new music and all that sort of thing, but it can become a distraction for a lot of people. It's a tough thing to figure out. So the Kohathites would have managed implements and objects, among those objects would have been instruments. They would have been lute makers and harp creators, and they would have been highly technical people figuring that out. Verse 33. These are the ones who ministered with their sons. Of the sons of the Kohathites were Herman the singer. Uh, Psalm 88 is dedicated to Heman the singer. I'm sorry, not Hermon, Heman. And not Heman, master of the universe. This is Heman the singer. And so Psalm 88's there, the son of Joel. It's interesting with the musicians that they minister with their sons. So the art of music gets taught. And you see a sense of like, and and I've seen this a lot as Grant's taken guitar lessons. It is a master musician that is the best teacher for a young musician. It is hard to just learn music on your own. Right? I'm going to figure this thing out with my YouTube clips way easier to play with somebody that's more advanced and have them show you little things and meet you where you're at so these musicians do it that way uh, He-Man in verse uh, 33 uh, gets uh, connected with um, his brother Asaph in verse 39 um, who stood at his right hand as was Asaph the son of Barakiah. now Asaph's a big deal because there's 12 psalms in the Bible dedicated to Asaph. Here, David wrote a lot of psalms, but when it was really important, um, he would hand his top songs to Asaph so Asaph could sing them. So that tells you something about Asaph as a musician and what kind of musician he was. When David himself would hand off a good song so that Asaph could perform it, that meant Asaph was pretty dang good at it. So you see these well-known people showing up here in the commentaries. Um, the first mention here of Asaph is a key figure in setting the tone for temple worship. Um, he is the chief musician when the ark is ascending to the new temple. Asaph's in charge of the music when that happens. Um, he's, also, he's also designated and appointed under David, and we'll see that in chapter 25. Uh, Ezra 2 notes that Asaph had the voice of an angel. So that idea of if somebody could sing well, Ezra 2 is like they were a son of Joseph. And so they would, if you just heard somebody in there great, you'd be like, oh, that person must be a descendant of Asaph. Which tells you a ton about who they were. Music groups aren't really noted in history outside the Bible. We don't see a lot of ancient world rock groups mentioned. But in the Bible, we do see musicians named as part of their ancient record. So Asaph would have been known, he would have been popular. Uh, The distance of time after 70 years in Babylon, like you think of that gap, if you go 70 years back in our time, there are musical groups like the Beatles that we've heard of. So when they're making some of these references, they're making references to people that would have been heard, um, noted, these families and these musicians are there and we'll see the history of music through Judaism and Christianity influences medieval culture, it influences Renaissance culture, and anywhere you go in the Western world, you see a development of new forms and new genres of music popping up all the time. God's a God of music, and the music doesn't stay static. It changes, it moves, but it always brings people to the presence of God when it's done in the Spirit of God, regardless of the genre and format. So David loved to write music, this guy loved to make music. The chroniclers are documenting all of these musicians as people that are named, respected, and regarded. This was the guy to do it. So verses 40, there's more names. 42, 43. These are the sons of Levi. They're Levites. Um, this, in, in a sense, those verses make Asaph a Gershonite, and Heman is an Ezraite, Psalm 88, So brother here is not used in a biological way. It's being used in a spiritual way. These were comrades. They were brothers. And so we see one of the first references of this kind of spiritual family link being used here in the Chronicles. And so we use that term all the the time today. We say in the church, you're my brother and you're my sister. So we see that relationship being built here too. Verse 44 gets to Merari. Um, on the the left hand and then there was Ethan, the son of Kishi uh, and they start listing all of these sorts of things and then they say and then they go backwards and they work it all the way up to the son of Levi in verse 47 and their brethren the Levites were appointed to every kind of service of the tabernacle of the house of God. In other words, all the services are important. Again, that word service means mundane. These guys, they did everything that needed to be done when it came to the temple and taking care of it and making sure worship was amazing. So when you look at that and you look at this kind of spiritual gifting, so to speak, God sees every service in verse 49, and every service is important to him. And I think this gets to be a bigger deal the more things there are to do. So God sees that every service is worth naming in the Chronicles know that when you do anything to serve the kingdom of God, God sees that too because he sees every service and he recognizes every service. So every service, meaning the people that clean the bathrooms, the people that do the dishes, cook the food, teach the teachings, take care of the kids, um, manage the parking arrangement out out in the parking lot, figure out how to cool down a house. Those are all the ministries that are part of the service in maintaining the temple and maintaining the church and God sees it. You get the family of Aaron. This is a good one. So you got the three sons of Levi. Those are three priestly families. But then there's this other family that gets singled out, the son of Aaron um, and and the children of Aaron. Aaron gets assigned during the time of Moses as the high priest. um, And his family is the one that actually do the sacrifices. They're the ones on the stage doing things publicly for the people. So Aaron and his sons, verse 49, offer sacrifices on the altar of burnt offering. That's a sin offering and on the altar of incense. And that would be a prayer offering. And for all the work of the most holy place and to make atonement for Israel according to all that Moses, the servant of God, had commanded. Now these are the sons of Aaron. And then verses 51, or 50, 51, 52, and 53 follow Aaron directly all the way down. And you see 12 priests listed here. There's a succinct record of those who are authorized to give the the, priestly, the blessing and the sacrifice. So this family of Aaron becomes a big deal. Um, Ahimahaz um, during David's time was known to be a, a, an enthusiastic priest. So when we see Ahimahaz in 2 Samuel 18, he's the guy after the battle that begs to go run and tell David because he's a fast runner. And so he asks for the permission and he races ahead to go tell David. So that's the guy that You go from Aaron to Ahimahaz. you've got a pretty good track record here. Notice that, um, first of all, notice that Jesus is not in this line. He's in the line of Judah. So how does Jesus become our high priest? And according to Hebrews 7, he's our high priest not because of Aaron's line, but because of the line of Melchizedek. He's a priest of the order of Melchizedek. He's not in the tribe, but because of Melchizedek, we know there's people that aren't in the tribe that served as priests to Yahweh. Make sense? So you still get the line of Aaron, and it's fairly important. Um, it goes, Aaron to Eleazar, his son. We're missing two people that just aren't named in the Chronicles. Nadab and Abihu, remember in First in Levitic, Leviticus 10, they get killed because they offer funky-smelling sacrifices, and God strikes them dead for their strange incense that they, they bring into the temple. And part of the strange fire is that God didn't want that kind of stuff going on in the temple. So Nadab and Abihu are kind of an embarrassing part of the record. Notice how Chronicles just skips the story. It doesn't even matter. The punishment is they're not even named. And so the death of those two sons just gets skipped. Eleazar becomes the inheritor of the priestly line, and he's faithful and he joins this calling. So there's kind of two ways to live life. You can either live life your own way, in which case you're kind of irrelevant in God's kingdom and God's plan. Or you can be like Eleazar and actually be loyal and be serving the Lord, even in the menial, mundane tasks, and you become part of the story. And Chronicles sets that up. So then you get the dwelling places of the Levites. A lot of text here. But here's the thing, with each one of these families... There's a location named where if you come back to the Holy Land, we know exactly what city you're going to be in. We have we know where everybody's supposed to be. And we're going to go right back to where we were when we left Babylon. So verse 54, all the way down to verse 81, are cities of the Levites and where each family gets located. Again, I'm not going to read through Every one of those, I'd encourage you to do it on your own or even right now while you're sitting here listening to me talk. Each tribe gives the Levites their cities, their service area, the common lands are mentioned. Common lands are the area right around the city within walking distance where the farms, the veggie gardens, the livestock pens, so they have some areas outside the walls where they can keep food. Um, The refugee cities are not forgotten here. They're noted in this passage They're known and they're assumed to be there. The refugee cities, if you remember, they're pretty amazing. And what happened is within about an hour's run of any place in Israel, you could run to a city of refuge. And if you were accused and you thought you were falsely accused or mistakenly accused, in order to get some sort of uh, avoidance from the avenger, you could skip that accusation until you got a fair trial by running to a city of refuge. You throw yourself at the mercy of the courts. And you say, I think I'm innocent and I want to present my case. So those cities of refuge are not only in practice, they're assumed to be in practice again when they come back. So here you go. Mercy for sinners and justice for those um, that are guilty. Judicial systems here are run by the Levites. They become the judges in these cities that they serve in. uh, Chapter 7. Now we start moving through other tribes of Israel. Uh, Issachar is here. There's a list of names that go with Issachar. 36,000 troops. They're ready for war. They had many wives and sons. Now they're brethren among all the families, verse 5, of Issachar. They were mighty men of valor, listed by their genealogies, 87,000 in all. We know exactly who these guys were. They were mighty at some point. Same idea as the other tribes. They continued to grow in Babylon, if you pick up on those numbers. The tribes are more or less blessed even while they're in Babylon. They've grown, they've gotten larger, and as they go back into the Holy Land, they could be great again. Family of Benjamin. Uh, sons of Benjamin are all listed there, three of them in all, in verse 6. If you go all the way down to verse 12, it goes to Shupham and Huppem, two of my favorite names if you're going to name your kids. Uh, they're the sons of Ur and Hashem was the son of Ahur. They're recorded by their genealogy. Thousands of names. We get a sense of scale here that every one of these families is being named, listed, recorded. They had nothing better to do in Babylon than put together all their family trees and get those records with the temple records. Family of Naphtali in verse 13 is interesting. gets one sentence. Verse 13. The sons of Naphtali were Jezel, Guni, Jezer, Shalom, and the sons of Bilhah. Wow, (laughs) just nothing. So you got these tribes, big lists, cities that go with it, chiefs, they were mighty men. There's just amazing things. This is almost an insult at best. At worst, it's a complete rejection of this wing of Israel. The Naphtalites have nothing of note to talk about. That's looking at kind of how these records get kept. That's kind of sad, but it's not as bad as the tribe of Dan. You start looking for the tribe of Dan. um, It's jarlingly out of place. Go all the way back into chapter two, verse one, and just look at the listing of the sons. They're in perfect birth order, except for Dan gets moved. So any rabbi teaching the Chronicles, you remember this? they would be going through those names and the kids would just whip them off because they've memorized them. And the rabbi would go, ah, 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 That's not what it says. What's wrong with it? And the kids would realize, oh, Dan's out of place. So fresh in their head is the tribe of Dan. But when you go through the family histories, Dan isn't even mentioned. But we'll show you where it is. Verse 12. It says, Husham, the son of Ahur. So, Genesis 46, 23 lists that Hushem is the son of Dan. So you're going, well, what's the word Aher, And why did they replace the name Dan with Aher, Right? And so it's Aher in the Hebrew means another son or another tribe. So it basically says Hushem, the son of some other tribe. Dan doesn't even get named, even though they know exactly what the name of Dan is when we saw it back in chapter two. So you get into the genealogies, and the writers have, and again, most people think it's Ezra and a group of people, the scribes putting this together, they make a decision together to say, we will not say the name of Dan in this. So as you're figuring out who's going to come back to the promised land, it looks like Dan's not invited. And if your name's Dan, I apologize, but you know, this is the history. So Dan here is just being called son of their tribe. Uh the uh, the Sons of Bilhah are noted in verse 13. So here's the sons of Naphtali were this, the sons, plural of Bilhah. So between 12 and 13, you've got two tribes being named. Bilhah was the wife that gave birth to two children, Naphtali and Dan. So when you're mentioning the plural sons of, of Bilhah here too, the is perfectly aware of what they're doing. They name Naphtali with a few good families. They don't name Dan at all. And I just think this stuff is... I don't know. Maybe I'm getting way too geeked out on it, but I think that's fascinating that they're doing that kind of work with these genealogies. Um, Why is Dan being left out? That's the other question. So some of this is just a reminder of history. Back in Judges 18, the first tribe of Israel to introduce Baal worship and idolatry was the tribe of Dan. Dan was the first tribe that introduced making their own priests. You didn't have to be a Levite. There were Danite priests that they recruited. They conquered a city They settled in the wrong spot. They were supposed to go where the Philistines were. Instead, they chickened out and they went up north. They didn't settle where they were supposed to. So they ignored the boundaries that were set up by Joshua, promises of God. They followed their own separate religion, including Baal worship. And they were that way until the day of captivity. They never followed the Lord. And thus, the tribe of Dan gets completely ignored in the glory of ancient Israel. What was great about Israel had nothing to do with that other tribe. They're an embarrassment to the family. It's like, wow, that's harsh. So by the time of Ezra, the Danites are a footnote. They're irrelevant. They're only relevant in that their dad was somebody who was godly. But they didn't follow after it. Just because your dad is godly doesn't mean you're going to be godly. Just because your parents are good doesn't mean you're going to be good. You have to choose it. Then you get to the descendants of Manasseh, and they're just going to show us. We know what a good family looks like. Here's the descendants of Manasseh. The Syrian concubine, Bora Maher. It goes through some names. The name of Gilead's grandson, Zelophehad and Zelophead, begot only daughters. This calls back to the... Uh, Zelophead. How do I say that? Zelophehad, Zelophead. Zelophead. Zelophad. Numbers chapter 36 is what they're bringing up is a story about the daughters that came up to Moses and said, we have no brother, does that mean we lose our land inheritance? And God said, nope, you get that inheritance and when you get married and you have sons, it'll go right to your son. And so they established a tradition of keeping the land and the family um, and and allowing the fact that, that women could carry that inheritance so that you didn't lose all your inheritance if you didn't have boys. Made it a little less important to have boys in the Jewish tradition. Ma'akah's wife in verse 16, and it goes on with more names. Verse 19 is the end of that tribe. You get a whole family. Chronicles mentions a story of faith that's brought up in here. Again, just this idea of here were these young girls that just displayed a faith and a trust in, in the Lord and asked for the inheritance and wanted it. And of their entire history, that's the story that gets remembered in Chronicles. That's the one that makes the books. Then you get Ephraim. Ephraim was known for their wealth. They were highly prosperous. They led the separation of Israel initially. And notice in Chronicles, there's no such thing as Israel and Judah. There's just Israel. But it was Ephraim that kind of led that split. But tons of families are named here. Um, And so you see this list... um, the men of Gath in verse 21 who were born in that land killed them because they came down to take away their cattle brings up this story. Then Ephraim their father mourned many days and his brethren come to comfort him and when he went to his wife she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Bariah because the tragedy had come upon his house. So you get this other reference. Then his daughter was named Sira, who was built the lower and upper Beth Horon and you get a list of places and cities comes all the way to In verse 27, Nun his son and Joshua his son. You know what Ephraim had? Joshua. That's their blessing. What's the inheritance of Ephraim? They brought to Israel Joshua son of Nun. An amazing champion for Israel. They brought Israel into the Holy Land, Moses' successor. He led them at Jericho and on all the victories they had to claim their place in the Holy Land. That's a pretty good heritage for Ephraim to have. So no mention of their sin, no mention of their falling away in that sense, which gets brought up is you used to be, you're the children of Joseph. That's your relationship. So, and they they do that at the end of verse 29, Dor and his towns in these, the children of Joseph, the son of Israel. Ephraim, you were great at one point. You have things to be proud of and it's not your power and wealth. It's the faithfulness of, of Joshua that, or I'm sorry, the faithfulness of Joshua and even the children of Joseph. Those are the things you should be proud of, right? You're one of the two tribes that inherited the land from Joseph. So those are the heroes. Samaria, the capital of Ephraim, six miles away from cities that are named here, not even mentioned. The largest city of the northern kingdom is not even mentioned. Yet when you go through these Ephraim cities, it's not that they're not naming cities. They put them all there, all these dwelling places and the possessions that are there. So again, there's this omission happening in Chronicles. They're intentionally skipping the embarrassing parts of their history because they're just sticking to what God's looking at. Um, Shechem is named there. That's where Abraham built his altar. Now that's important. We're going to name Shechem. Shechem is a fraction of the size of Samaria. But Shechem is something to be proud of. Genesis 12, Jacob built an altar in Genesis 33. Shechem's the thing that you should be proud of. Not the Baal worship of Samaria. Not the Asheroth worship that you had. Not the division that you caused. None of that. That's not who you are. You're children of Joseph. You have the inheritance of Joshua. You're the city of Shechem. You're where the altars got built. That's what Ephraim's all about. So the chronicler is defining these families by what they mean for God. Here's Asher, verse 30. Asher gets listed here. Their sister Sarah gets listed in verse 30. Then you get down to Heber, begot those, Hotham, and their sister Shua gets mentioned. You have these sisters getting mentioned with Asher. That's kind of interesting. Now, rabbinical tradition says the reason the women were mentioned is that these were legendary women. In the fact that the Asherites were known to be fairer than most of the other tribes, they were good looking. And so you get this notice of like, you know, you get some tribes where it's the mighty men that get highlighted. But when you get to Asher, it's not clear why they're including the sisters. But a lot of the rabbinicals teachings say they're including the sisters because they were known for their beauty. And, and what a gift they were to the nation in that sense. Um, some guessed that there were other stories that were told around these women, which we don't have in our records. So verse 40, all these were the children of Asher, the heads of their father's houses. And now we get to the men, the choice men, the mighty men of valor. They were chief leaders and they were recorded by the genealogies among the army fit for battle. And their number was 26,000. They were a mighty tribe. They stood for the Lord. They were leaders They were men, they had valor, they were not prisoners, they were not slaves, they were not subject to Babylon, they were men. And God encourages in these passages strength, courage, valor, and leadership, and he recognizes it. And the women are not absent from this list. So if God is in charge and we're his ambassadors and we're supposed to reflect him, look at what God appreciates about these tribes, people that know who they were. Their faith in God was strong, their competence was there, their ability was tested, and that's what God sees. So again, these were good men, and you know what? Asherites, you're going to be good men again, and women, you're going to stand for something again. It's time to move back to Jerusalem. It's time to come back to Israel. Then you get to the family of Benjamin in chapter 8. You say to yourself, didn't we already do the family of Benjamin back in chapter 7? Yes, we did. But this is an expanded version of this. Uh, this is what we've seen before. Judah had an th- initial listing and then they had an expanded listing. So verses 1 through 28 are, is a specific documentation of the tribe of Benjamin. Um, it is a clue in the review of Benjamin that what's highlighted by these locations is these are all the locations around the city of Jerusalem. In other words, where Judah might be the primary settlers of the city, the Benjaminites are going to get all the cities around Jerusalem. And so that's one way to read this. Verse 29, you see the father of Gibeon is there. Uh, Ma'akah dwelt at Gibeon, and his firstborn son. And and notice that they include uh, Baal in there. Again, Nadab is a notorious evil priest that gets named. Um, so when you see those last two names, there's there's history there that's fairly negative, but they're included in that their families today have, are still are probably coming back to Israel with everybody else. So they've changed. The word 33 is uh, ner at the beginning of verse 33. The word means lamp or light. Um, that name's been changed. We don't know why. In other chrono- in other Genealogies, Nur is actually Abiel and is listed as Abiel but in this genealogy the name is changed to lamp or light and you get the uh, Kish Kish begot Saul you know what family of Benjamin what you should be proud of at one point Saul was walking with the Lord and he begot Jonathan and those two guys Saul fell away but at one point he was the king of Israel so you got some things to be proud of there then they give the sons of Jonathan and they list those and they walk through some of those all the way to Azel, his son. And then Azel had six sons and gives the names of all six of them. And the sons of Eshek, his brother, were Ulam, his firstborn Jeush, the second, and Elipheleth, the third. Impressive, but one more thing. They were fighters, verse 40. The sons of Ulam were mighty men of valor, archers. Archers were the elite crack troops of the ancient world. You had archers, you won the battle. It was just a... Who's going to win the battle? I don't know. Who has more archers? And that's all the way up until the Middle Ages with plate armor. Even after initial plate armor, that was the determination of who would win a battle. Who could shoot a bow? That was the artillery. It was the long-ranged. They had sons. They had grandsons, 150 in all. These were the sons, these were all sons of Benjamin. Again, here's this thing where if you're a Benjaminite, there's this sense of pride getting built. You guys were great. Soldiers that fight wars, archers that win wars. Without the Benjaminites, you're not winning a lot of wars. Hey, Israel, we used to win wars. Remember, we used to be great. So each tribe gets remembered for their holy history, their valor on the battlefield, their homes their renown of faith, and the degree to which they serve their God. And not in that order. The God thing probably comes first. Chapter nine, all Israel was recorded by genealogies, and indeed they're inscribed in the book of the kings of Israel. But Judah was carried away captive to Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. All this greatness, but you know why you're in Babylon? Because you forgot, because you're not great anymore. It's not Assyria, it's not Babylon. Israel is responsible for them going. You see that? They're carried away because of their unfaithfulness, not because of Babylon. So there's the idea. Between the verse 1 and verse 2 of chapter 9, you're going to just skip 70 years of history. Poof. Doesn't matter. That time in Babylon, irrelevant. So you'll have to go to Daniel to hear more about that, other places, but Chronicles just, poof, skips right past it. So they have their chronicles. They have the Torah. They have a complete history. And now they have this record that is there, this complete listing. Verse 2 says, and the first inhabitants to dwell in their possessions in their cities were Israelites, priests, Levites and the Nethanim. You know who goes back first? The priests go back first. Who leads the way? The spiritual leaders of the nation lead the way. And they move back into these towns. Remember there were still farmers and like laborer class people that were left in the land, they're still Israelites back in the land. So they go back to start leading the people and teaching the word. It's interesting that they do that. So you see these groups, they're returning to their calling. Israel's supposed to be a light to the world. Notice that they're called Israelites. They're not called Judeans because Israelite includes all of the tribes, which we just got done listing. So they name their people here. They're united people once again. So we have zero regard in chronicles for a split between north and south israel they just don't regard it in these genealogies they'll get to it in the history they dwelt in their possessions they came back and they returned to the land but notice they returned to the land that god had given them it's still their possession even though god had kicked them out for a time you know it's like when you ground a student or you take away their toy for a week it's still their toy you're just going to take it away for a little while So there's no record of any conquest that's needed. When the Israelites come back into the land, there is nobody there to challenge them because it's all under Persian rule. So when Cyrus says you can go back and arm and fill these cities, um, there is no battle like with Joshua. They don't have to fight. They just move right in. Verse 2. So they get priests, Levites, and Nethanim. So priests are the children of Aaron. They're still intact. We got their genealogy. The Levites, we just went through their genealogies you got the trades, the musicians all coming back. And then you get this group called the Nethanim. This is the first use in the Bible of the word Nethanim. So what's the Nethanim? In the Hebrew, it means those that are given. Those that are given to the task of serving the temple. They're non-Levites that are bonded to or committed to serving God because they choose to. This is an interesting phenomenon in the Old Testament. It means that anybody who wants to give their life to serve God can just say, Lord, I'd like to give you my life and serve you. And the Bible makes room for that. You're called a Nethanim, those that are given to the Lord. And so you have some examples that we've seen of that. Uh, Ezra 258 says there's exactly 392 nethanim that come with them as they go back to the land. Very small number, but they're seen, they're named, and God records them in the histories right now. They're the originals. They go back. So the nethanim are a few different groups of people. Numbers 31. There's a group of Midianite women that give themselves to praying in front of the temple. They're the prayer warriors. And so the the Midianite women in Numbers 31 become the servants in times of war. They become the, at the the temple, they become 24-7 prayer ministry at the temple. Awesome. We need more Midianite women in that sense. Gibeonites uh, are from Josh 12. Remember they deceived Joshua and said, well... If you don't destroy us, we'll carry the water and we'll carry the wood. And so the Gibeonites were given over to serving the temple instead of being pushed out of the land because they made that deal with Joshua. What's interesting is the Nethanim coming back right now likely included Gibeonites. They're still serving in that role. And as they go back to rebuild the temple, the Gibeonites were so happy to serve God in that role that they've become part of Israel. They're just part of the Nethanim. Here's another group of people. 1 First, First Kings 20 mentions a group called the Sons of the Prophets. They are hearing from God when the priests start to go corrupt, and they out of the Sons of Prophets come a number of prophetic voices that have made their way into the Word of God. Quite a few of those weren't Levites. They were the Sons of the Prophet. So a non-Levite group that's given themselves to serving God. Last but not least, number six includes a catch-all, Nazarites. Anybody that wants to commit their life to the Lord can live or take the Nazarite vow. It's a really interesting thing. What, what's interesting about this vow is that it's a separation unto God. You just say, I'm gonna take my life and I'm gonna separate it to God. You become part of the Nethanim. You become part of this group of non-Levites that serve God in the temple, and you're listed along with this group. And those are the first, those are the forefront. Those are the the vanguard of the group of Israelites coming back into the land. The people that are faithful and choose to be faithful. They're the ones God records. He keeps track of them. So you get a narrower focus on Jerusalem as a city. This is their primary destination. Verse 3. In Jerusalem, the children of Judah dwelt some from the tribe of Benjamin, some of Ephraim and Manasseh, Athai the son of Ahimud, son of Omri. So you get this list of people and you notice it's not just one tribe. It's a bunch of different people that are settling in the city of Jerusalem. And so you get a listing of all the families that are going to populate Jerusalem. All these men were heads of a father's house in their father's houses. And then you get the priests that are located at Jerusalem, starting in verse 10. Verse 10, of the priests and it names out all the priests that are going to serve in Jerusalem. They were Abel. The interesting word about Abel in verse 13 is that it's the same word that's used for mighty, valorous men earlier in the other chapters. They were mighty men of valor for the work of the service of the house of God. In other words, the use of the word mighty or valorous is not used in a military context. What makes them valorous is how they serve the Lord. That's interesting because that sounds very much like the Christian church today. We fight our battles, but they're not of flesh and blood. We fight powers and principalities, but we fight and we fight those things. So these are good, sufficient. They're mighty even. They're ready to serve. They're ready to go. The Nephilim, the priests, the Levites. Um, and we see this term that's typically reserved for soldiers being used for these godly people ready to do service for God. I just think this is great. So of the Levites, verse 14, you got a list of the Levite families that are settling in Jerusalem. And then in 17, you get a term called gatekeepers. And here's the gatekeepers. Now, Jerusalem's a big city. It has walls. It has gates. But those aren't the gates we're talking about. Um, the gates were where judicial things could happen in the city. But the temple courtyard also had gates. So when they start building the second temple, there is a courtyard that has gates at it. The role of the gatekeepers was a lot like what we would call ushers. Their job was to get up early in the morning, sweep up all the leaves that landed in the courtyard, clean it up, get it ready to go, salt you know, in case there's a snowstorm that comes through, open up the gates so that people could come in and be comfortable when they came to the temple to praise. In other words, the gatekeepers were hospitality specialists. When you came to the temple, it was a blessing when you came to the temple. And the gatekeepers kept that all straightened out. Of them, Shalom was the chief, verse 17. So until then, they'd been gatekeepers for the camps of the children um, of Levi at the king's gate on the east. These people kept doing hospitality even when they didn't have a temple. In other words, not having a temple should not stop our music ministry, and it shouldn't stop our hospitality ministry. Like Those things happen with or without a temple. If you love God, you continue to do those things. So you got the gatekeepers. Um, gatekeepers have a list of families. They're in charge of the work of the service, the gatekeepers of the tabernacle. Their fathers were keepers in the entrance of the camp of the Lord. And Phineas, son of Eleazar, had been an officer over them in time past, and the Lord was with them. So they point out Phineas, if you remember him, you had a couple people defying God, and they start having sex in front of the tabernacle. Everybody's permitting and tolerating that to happen. And Phineas says, ah, 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 no. And he grabs a javelin, and he stabs them both through with one javelin throw. It's a very gory scene. But the idea is all the people in the kingdom of God, there's one guy that stood up and said, not in my house, not in God's house. And it was Phineas. And here in the Chronicles, they're elevating him, saying the Lord was with him. There is things you tolerate out in the world and there are things you don't tolerate when you're coming into the worship and the presence of God. And God won't be mocked. He won't be put down in that kind of way. So it's an interesting thing that Chronicles takes this ushering and brings up kind of a noble, noteworthy human being that was blessed by God in Numbers 25 um, in having a standard that would be kept. So the gatekeeper implies something of like and a role of elder, too. Like, there, this is our culture. This is who we are. And there's certain people in the body that say, we're going to enforce this. This is how we do things. And, and, and thankfully, we don't throw javelins through each other anymore. But we still have people of God that will say, this is how we do things in our group. And we, we do it in an orderly way. And we do it in a way that honors what we're doing. And we're doing it because we're all here to study through the Word of God together. And that's our mission. That's what we're here to do. They note honored Phineas. Verse 21, you get the keeper of the door of the tabernacle. Um, all the chosen gatekeepers, verse 22, they are 212. Again, a really small number, but important to God and important to the record keepers. These are important people. Um, David and Samuel the seer had appointed them in their trusted office. These people were appointed by David and Samuel themselves. It's a key role, a key ministry that gets served. So... They get another chance to go back into that service role. And they got people coming back with Ezra and Nehemiah when they resettle the land that will fall right back into those roles because they liked those roles. They liked serving the Lord. So they got organization. There's no confusion. They keep the worship of God peaceful and in an operational kind of way. They open the door on time. They close the door. They keep the riffraff from being a distraction. Uh, they, They act in that way. So they and their children were in charge of the gates of the house of the Lord, verse 23, and the house of the tabernacle by assignment. This is all orderly. The Gatekeepers were assigned to the four directions, east, west, north, and south. This is an image of the world. They're assigned to, to do this and to do it in all directions. So their brethren and their villages come with them from time to time for seven days. For this trust, this, in this trusted office were four chief gatekeepers and they were Levites. They had charge over the chambers and the treasuries of the house of God. Part of keeping order with the body of of Christ, the body of God, is they were treasurers. They kept track of the books. These people kept order in the sense of, uh, we're going to make sure the money gets tracked the right way, and we're responsible with it. A lot of you guys know we don't talk about that sort of thing much, but, I mean, we got the love box. If you feel like helping out, we'll make sure that whatever goes in that box gets used for the ministering and the advancing of the kingdom. And you have people that are accountable to that. And the gatekeepers were part of that. They were accountability people. They lodged all around the house of God because they had the responsibility and they were in charge of opening it every morning. So they lived close. They were faithful. They were always there. The high priest didn't have to worry about the gates being taken care of. Didn't have to worry about the finances. Didn't have to worry about keeping the place cleaned up. The gatekeepers were like, we'll take care of that. And they loved doing it. So Samuel was the first to have the position in 1 Samuel. He was the little kid that ran around and took care of things for people. And so Samuel himself founded this position and look at how it's grown since then. And as they're coming back from Babylon, there's a whole families of gatekeepers that served the same way that Samuel, Samuel did and kept that daily routine and that order in the house of God. Other Levite responsibilities are in verse 28. Some of them were in charge of serving vessels. They brought them and took them in. They were waiters. They took care of the food ministry. Some of them were apported over the furnishings and over all the implements of the sanctuary and over the fine flour and the wine and the oil and the incense and the spices. They were cleaners. They were designers. They were cooks. They just took care of having people around. And some of the sons of the priests made ointment of the spices. They were ointment makers. You know, if you're going to have good worship for God, like people should smell good. Matthiah, the Levites, the firstborn of Shalon, the Korathite, and the trusted office over things, they were, that were baked in pans. There were bakers in the temple. This gets really good if you like food, right? There were people whose life was dedicated to baking bread for God. What a cool idea. Verse 32, some of the brethren, the sons of the Kohathites were in charge of preparing the showbread every Sabbath. So these are special bakers. So the first bakers were just making bread for the people, but these verse 32 bakers, they're making the showbread that goes on the table of fellowship every day in the in the Holy of Holies. What an honor. They're, and then verse 33, these are the singers, the heads of the fathers of the house of Levites, Who lodged in the chambers and were free from other duties, for they were employed in that work day and night. Free from other duties. Think about this in the ministry. A lot of times in the church today, we have pastors. And pastors in small churches do everything they're the hospitality, they're the children's ministry, they're this, they're that, they're that. Or even worse, the wife does everything, right? And it becomes a burden. And the burnout rate in the ministry today is crazy. There is no burnout rate with these people. They did it for generation after generation after generation. Kids took over the duties of their parents, and these things persisted for hundreds of years. Why? Because they were free from other duties. They did one thing. You're the gatekeeper. That's all you do. Why are you sitting around? Because I finished my duties. I opened the gates. Now I can relax. I love my job. This is great. Why are you relaxing? Because the bread's been made. The bread's on the show table. It's ready to go. I've done what God's asked me to do. I've finished my calling. The burden of the Levites, my point is, was not heavy. It wasn't that they worked themselves to the bone for the sake of God, right? When they finished making the showbread for the day, they were good to go hang out, go visit, you know, uh, the bookstore, you know, read some texts, you know, go shopping at the mall, hang out with their spouses. It wasn't that stressful. It wasn't something that would burn somebody out. And it's interesting how when God sets up this ministry, and we see in Chronicles how it's set up, that those who lodged in the chambers were free from any other duties, for they were employed in that work day and night. They were dedicated to one thing. If you were a musician, that's all you did, day and night. All you had to worry about was music, because the food was blessed in some other way. You didn't have to worry about that. And so there's just this idea that these Levites served an essential purpose in the kingdom, and the kingdom provided for them. And so they could focus on putting their excellence into the one thing they did for God. In this sense, the Jewish people advanced baking, they advanced metalwork, they advanced carpentry, because they had people whose lives were dedicated to singular tasks and roles. And in, in a historical sense, in the ancient world, you see specialists being developed, in part because it's how God ordered the temple worship to be taken care of. These people were the fabric people, and they dealt with all the fabrics. And so they perfected and developed those sorts of skills and talents and then shared them with the Jewish people. So you see the prosperity that pops out is really just people being faithful in those daily tasks. Uh, Verse 34 through the end of the chapter is the family of Saul. Uh, Again, Saul fell from grace and he was not, um, didn't finish as a king the way he should have. But Saul's line went on, and when they went off to Babylon, there were still many families that were descendants of Saul that decide to go back to Israel, and they decide to be part of it. So not only are David's descendants alive and returning to Israel with the tribe of Judah, but Saul's line is alive and coming back to Israel, too. And the descendants of Saul were welcomed. They were returned. They weren't ostracized because of Saul. They were were part of the nation, and they were brought in. The sins of the father are not the sins of the son. So they, they, on their own right, can be redeemed in that sense. So Saul isn't named with any failings here. We'll get to them later in Chronicles. But at least in the genealogies, there's no noted like, hesitation here. In fact, Saul as a family is elevated and honored. And I think that's what David would have wanted. He was the chosen of God. And David treated him well despite his misgivings because it wasn't David's job to judge him. And look at how God's blessed Saul's family and how they've grown and multiplied. Uh, So if you look at that and you look at multiplying families as any indication here in the genealogies, the appearance is, when you read through those verses, uh, that Saul's family was actually pretty much blessed and is still part of Israel. So next we're going to pick up where Saul dies at the Battle of Gilboa. The histories start next week with chapter 10. Thought we might dig in a little bit tonight, but we at least finished the genealogies. So we're done with those, and next week we'll pick up back with the histories. Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you for your grace. Thank you for the passion of a set of believers that wants to read through genealogies on a Sunday night. Lord, I'm so blessed by that. I'm so blessed that I'm not just crazy, and I think this stuff is amazing. Uh, so, Lord, I just thank you for brothers and sisters that are as committed to knowing God's heart through what he has to say. So, Lord, help us to understand it, to receive it. Um, Lord, help the genealogy to become something we see as a treasure and that we're blessed that these records are here. And we don't know every name and we don't know the story behind every name, but you do. And Lord, I love the fact that you keep a record book with people that aren't necessarily historical giants, but to you, they're important enough to put in the word of God for all of history and all of eternity. So Lord, I thank you for these families that you've recorded, that they they came back and they resettled the land and that the nation of Israel, Lord, never does get reestablished until our era, until our generation. Um, But Lord, I can't wait to see what you're going to do, how your plan's going to unfold and how Chronicles points us there. In Jesus name. Amen.